I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is uh, Pilot Club. I'm, Drew, I'm feeling very relaxed tonight, having just run 7Ks oh, at the gym. No flex. Nice. <laughs> it's boring. It's just it's a part of my life. So it's what you do. I'll listen to my Pet Shop Boys playlist, just kind of getting in the groove. So now I'm feeling very, I'm feeling like I've got a very physical approach. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat this mm. podcast like a workout. I'm just going to pummel through it. <laughs> Well, you're a real gym goer now, so yeah, that's it's what you do. It's how you, how you live your life. Every it's just it's, just, it's boring, <laughs> but it's who I am. Um, yeah, and it's kind of like I like the way in which you know it can take the shadow of the day away and just make you feel like you're exercising your bones, <laughs> which is a segue into our our first series this week, the extended Grishaverse. That's right. That's mm. right. So our first series tonight is uh, Shadow and Bone. Mm. That was yeah. a bad segue, actually. That was a really bad segue. <laughs> I don't know how you exercise your bones. I don't think you were doing it right. No, and and the shadow <laughs> the shadow analogy didn't work. I, I guess when you've almost run a marathon, you get, you get a free pass for segues. I think you should check for injuries tomorrow. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Micro fractures and so yes, forth. Yes. Yes. Um, so shadow and bone. Mm. It is. It is Netflix's bold attempt to recapture the uh, the Game of Thrones glory. Or Game of Bones. Oh, nice, mm. nice. That was better. That, that was much better. That was better. Yep. <laughs> Getting better at those segues. Yep. Um, it is an American fantasy streaming series um, developed by Eric Heisserer for Netflix. Uh, premiered fairly recently, so April 23rd. It's like you said correctly, I think, you know, true to the Grisha novel trilogy. What's your favourite novel in the Grishaverse? Uh, I like Six of the Crows. Uh- <laughs> Interesting, because that's generally considered to be the most unfinished book in the Grishaverse. Well, I think Bardugologists uh, do think that um, uh, Six of the Crows and its duology really oh, is the, okay. strength, the strength of the you're going for the You're going um, for the kind of the counterintuitive, the hot take. Okay, cool. I mean, some question whether it actually is a part of the Grishaverse, but that's that's another podcast. That's my Grishaverse podcast. To, to complete us. It's yeah. a separate branch. Yeah, that's a separate podcast. Spin-off, that's spin-off a separate podcast. podcast. Uh, so it is a series mm-hmm. with quite an elaborate premise, you'd have to say, and it takes place in the kingdom of Ravka, mm. primarily, which is based on loosely uh, Tsarist Russian Empire. So now there were a lot of a lot of issues I had with this pilot, but one was I couldn't particularly garner the motivations of the characters. But what I could, based on yeah. my synopsis, yep. is that there's a, a kingdom called Ravka, which is loosely based on Tsarist Russia. Yep. Characters are wearing sort of Tsarist costuming. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, at times, it feels more like alternative history than fantasy. Did you yes. feel that? Yeah. I mean, more, I know Game of Thrones does too, but more so here. Yeah. There were times when it strayed into Peaky Blinders territory. I, <laughs> I, cannot do, I cannot do a certain brand of like English, like... You know, Guy Ritchie inflected period gangster. There was a strange. There was a strange. There was a peaky uh, blinders moment. Through, through I was like, peaky oh, territory. No. oh uh, no! But we have Ravka, yep. and then we have, uh, I suppose, another another kingdom where the city of uh, what is it called? The city of sounds like a, a Dutch city. Yeah, this is bad. This, this is this, bad this, recap, this, man. This, this is not a great this recap. Is bad. This is. I'm struggling here. I'll I'll find it in my notes. Let's just call it the other city. The city ci- two. The city is called. Just waiting. <laughs> Let's just call it. City. Not scintillating potting over Ketadam. I got there eventually. Oh, Ketadam. Ketadam, of course, of course. Ketadam, of course. Cannot okay, Rotterdam. Ketadam. Ah. <laughs> so, so Ketadam is separated from Ravka, as mm. far as I could tell, by what was known as the Fold. And I feel like the Fold here is like the wall in Game of Thrones. Yes, that's right. right. It's the sublime like dividing object. Yes. So the fold, uh, based on what we know, is a mysterious Mm. kingdom cast by the spell of a witch a century ago. And it basically creates a kind of Berlin Wall type Mm. uh, climate between East and West Ravka. Mm. And in order to circumnavigate it, you need to go through another kingdom and it's permafrost. Mm, so well, really, <laughs> so really in order to that actually... Was very, that was really solid use of permafrost. I know, I had to, I had to recover from that Ketadan faux pas. That was great, that was great. Um, so as a result, the only way of communicating between these two is going through a kind of quasi-checkpoint Charlie, mm. which, is our, which is our fold. Mm. And the fold is inhabited by a carnivorous brand of monsters called Volcra. Mm. Now, I couldn't really determine or ascertain exactly why characters here were so desperate to move from... From east to west, Ravka. Could there, you? There's something in it too about how you can't get around the fold for some reason, and people. Well, you've got to go through the permafrost, so it takes oh, a long that's time. The permafrost, yeah. okay. Yeah, and you can't bury under it too. There was no some, because they 
things can get you under. They can get yeah, you under. Yeah, yeah. That you signal to them that you're yeah. you're doing it. So, yeah. so there's an inseparable or insuperable barrier, mm. at least seemingly, between these two. And I think these you know, two, this divided country in some ways. And part of our confusion, I think, stems from the fact that the pacing is really weird in this first pilot. Like, you know, the fold is like the wall. It's this sublime yes. object, but. You know, it, it doesn't really build up to it that effectively. Like, you'd think that traversing the fold would be something that would happen towards the end of a season yes. or even several seasons in and that you'd kind of approach and apprehend the fold from a distance. Yes. But the fold is so all-encompassing here. It's, I don't know, it just, it didn't, it didn't feel like it was quite given the majesty and the excitement that it deserved. But maybe that serves a narrative function later on as well. But it's it certainly... I do know what you mean. I yeah. think one of the really effective thing about things about Game of Thrones was it suggested this world beyond the wall. Yeah, exactly. In some ways. Mm. And there was a great there was a great build-up. And I don't mm. think we actually ventured beyond the wall mm. until season three in some exactly. ways. Exactly. Or you, so, you glimpse it. But yeah. So going actually into the fold and mm. seeing all its mysteries... In the first episode. ...displayed in the, in the first episode, I think might, might have maybe... I'm not sure exactly how the the novels operate, mm. and maybe that was actually a, a key, I suppose, mm. part of the I suppose the setup in some ways mm. here. But but it did take away from the sublime potential of the fold I'll, to a certain extent. I found. I agree, and it's yeah. I mean, I anyway. Yeah, continue. Yeah, I've got a bit of a take on the. We'll come back to the fold. So uh, we have we have two protagonists here, mm. but one one in particular um, named Alina Starkov. Now, Alina Starkov is a young orphan who basically comes from a mixed i suppose ethnic parentage and mm. as a result she faces some discrimination so she's part half ravkin mm. and half shu mm. which i suppose is their equivalent of asiatic in in this particular culture mm. and she plays a cartographer in i suppose the ravkin expeditionary forces which is something again that's unusual like i mean i, I know we're comparing it a lot to game of thrones but it's been marketed that way so yeah. it's obviously going for that i mean there is this focus on cartography and maps and world building at the beginning like yes. there's a scene when she's a child and a guardian explains to her the nature of the fold so you, you feel at the beginning there is going to be this really elaborate world building but it just kind of falls away a bit as the episode proceeds mm. and it all feels a lot more localised. Well, I think what we were really missing was that Game of Thrones map introduction. I agree. Where was it? I agree, yeah. <laughs> that should just be, I think, the starting premise of every single fantasy sequence. Every fantasy sequence. Yeah. Because fantasy sequences in some ways, just by their nature and because of the elaborate world building they mm. do, are so difficult in some ways to follow narratively. That's always That's been always my issue with any sort of fantasy, whether it's uh, written text or whether mm. it's an actual visual you know, film or TV series. Mm. It's just how... Just the sheer elaborate detail of these worlds of makes it very difficult to follow and this, geographically. And in this case too, I mean, something you would say about Game of Thrones is that every world, at least at the beginning, has a very vivid narrative hook. Whereas here, like... That's true. I mean, What's like, a distinct visual market that signifies? Yeah. yeah. Whereas I felt here, outside of the main woman, what was her name? Um, Alina. Alina and her kind of best friend Mal. slash... What's his name? Mal. Alina and Mal. Outside of them... Everything else was kind of a bit one-dimensional and a bit mechanical. And I guess this was something that I didn't really like that much about the pilot. I mean, it made you realise in Game of Thrones there's such an incredible breadth of relationships, like family relationships, romantic relationships, sexual relationships, and they're all so unpredictable mm. and so unusual in a way that was really refreshing, especially for a fantasy, whereas here... All the emotional energy is centred on like a really twee YA romance. Yes, that's I mean, right. <laughs> it kind of it kind of feels like a YA. It feels like a white like the worst kind of YA novel dressed up as fantasy. Like you know, they're just best friends. You know, she likes. <laughs> they're it. awfully close physically for yeah, best friends. I mean, she likes. The tension is pretty. Is pretty clumsily and framed it's kind of basic like she likes his personality <laughs> but he also happens to be really good looking and tall and he's a boxer <laughs> he would never think of sleeping with another woman because their friendship's too important like it's just such a kind of it's such a twee conservative precious romance i know something happens in the episode that subverts it a little bit towards the end but you know it's such a milquetoast emotional palette compared mm. to Game of Thrones. Yes. In a way that makes, I thought almost makes, like something about seeing fantasy and the breadth of fantasy inflected through such a twee yes. central romance. Yes. I just found a really 
took took the edge off it for me in a big way. Yeah, and I was thinking, I was thinking in some ways, why does this not particularly work for me? And I think there are some stre- there are some strong mm. points about this part. It's certainly watchable. I think, and we'll come back. I think the fold is the strongest bit. Yes, but well, yeah, what, what yeah. did you, what, what I, did you I, think? I, the, certainly, everything that I say is qualified by the fact that this is certainly the high production values, mm. the costuming, the world building is competent. Uh, the acting, I think, is pretty strong. Well, it's almost like two shows. Like, I remember that one of our friends, um, Dave, shout out Dave, said, I think he watched Gold Diggers of 1933, and he said it was, you know, the Busby Berkeley film, and he said it was like... It's <laughs> the segue. It's a good segue. He said, because for those who listen, the Busby Berkeley film is the first two acts and normally like a kind of behind-the-scenes, you know, backstage drama, and the last one is an elaborate kind of visual display, and Dave said that it was like watching... The, the kind of the Stargate sequence from 2001 plus two hours of Just Shoot Me. <laughs> and this, this is incongruous in the same way. Like, it's like you have the sublime fold, then like like a kind of sub-Jean Green kind of novel yes. around it. Like just, <laughs> it's, just, it's like you have this, this huge fold and then you have like just... You know, like the faults in our stars, part five. <laughs> That's true. Around it, it's just That's like this. Really, just the two. That's don't... very true. Or, or Peaky Blinders in the case of Kennedy. Oh Dan. yeah, just <laughs> the recourse. I don't know what it is. Something about Peaky Blinders really triggers me. It's just the kind. Look, I can't tell you actually what it is. Like yeah. it's. I mean, this this is a kind of color. It's a colorblind series. Yeah. And there's something about a certain kind of colorblind historicism but i think also well, a kind i think of, i think though there is a little bit of racial discrimination as part baked into is, this plot there is which as well it's more effective i think than that just pure colorblind there is as well but it's i mean there's something about like alternative history whether colorblind history or cyberpunk history in the mm. case of peaky blinders that actually it's often just used as a veil for the most conservative twee englishness yes and i feel like this is like that like yeah sure they're russian sure it's colorblind but what that's actually kind of veiling yes. is the fact that this is just like it's like watching Harry Potter on speed. Like it's so English in such a twee, insular way. So I think I think that's what it is. Like actually, racially, it feels very insular and mm. very homogenous, mm. despite the surface trappings. And certainly, the romance is very chaste, and the the way that their courtship, well, not quite courtship, mm. is conducted is very is very mannered. Yes. So it has that it has that kind of politeness of yes. a of a classic it's ta- YA. It's tasteful. It's yes, and that's. One thing that Game of Thrones did not go for. No. It, had a, it had a sublime amorality to it. And also, you know, if these if these shows like Game of Thrones, are, and this one to some extent, are taking place in a kind of quasi-feudal time, I mean, you expect a different kind of social and romantic connection from the kind of middle-class respectability yes. that you have here. So the 19th just, century courtship. Exactly. You know, drama I mean, that, that occurs here. I know I am fixating on that, but I just thought that, well, that's, that is the, such emo- a central, that's yeah. the emotional core. That's the emotional hook, because every other character is very... Is very, uh, I suppose, it's almost just a sketch, a character sketch. Just mechanics. Uh, it's very difficult to actually yes. figure out what relationship they they yes. bear in relation to one another. It's, almost, few, it's almost like yeah. someone fantasizing their twee relationship through an entire <laughs> fantasy apparatus. <laughs> Maybe something that fantasy in two con- ways concocted by a dreamy thirteen-year-old yeah, who is doodling on a yeah. on a sketch pad during yeah. English class. Yeah. <laughs> well, it just it just feels it feels like you have this very sublime object the fold and then you have everything else around it is milk or toast yes anyway, i'll let you continue. i think that's right no i think that's true and i was mm. thinking why did game of thrones and especially at the pilot level work so and it's a great family pilot. oh it's that's a fantastic a pilot. pilot i was yeah. i was hooked yeah. after that pilot compared to this and i think that that first reason you gave is is really prominent mm. the fact that this all figures around this you know quite conventional bland mm. ya type romance that's i think the first reason um there's a couple of others though i think as well so I think almost every character here, save for a few, uh, has a quite a bland sameness to their look yes, and their appearance. Absolutely. And one of the strengths of Game of Thrones was its its wonderful cast of of character actors, mm. its deep bench of character actors I that agree. are called on, who are not handsome in a conventional way at all, but have that wonderful odd odd looking sort of cragginess of those. I remember one of my friends once described it as the soap opera look. It's got to be someone who's good looking enough to watch for seven seasons, but weird and interesting enough to sustain you as well. Yes, and yes. A, everyone is kind of, maybe good looking is not the right word, everyone is arresting in Game of Thrones, but yes. in a weird way. Yes. Yep. Or even even kind of grotesque, that kind yep. of grotesque mm. attractiveness. Yeah, the, exactly. the, the hound and... I need to draw you. Yes. <laughs> they, had a con- they had a fascination. Yep. Like this, they were compelling visually. And also, it's worth saying, just good character actors. 
Yes. Like storied character actors. Yes. Which you I, don't, and a lot of adult character actors, which that, you don't have That's here. right. Here, a lot, of, a lot of the characters are kind of attractive, you know, quite bland mm. boy, girl, girl, uh, you know, boy band, girl band type, yep. type way. Even characters who you feel should be 10 years, 20 years older. Mm. So I think and that's... again, a, that's the YA market. Like everyone feels adolescent. That's right. Yep. That's right. Or, or proto-adolescent, mm. definitely. Um, I think another real reason here is that one, I think another real strength of Game of Thrones was the way that it suggested or at least foreshadowed that there was something supernatural in this environment. I agree. That's something dumb. magical without actually necessarily depicting it straight away. Mm. So they really kept the powder dry in some ways. And I think here it dispels the mystery of the yes. magic that's in, occurring in this world and the differences between a historical world and a, mm. and a, fantas- and a fantastical world mm. very quickly and very early on. I agree. In a way. So yes. characters here are possessed with particular powers of controlling the elements, I believe, mm. in particular wind and fire mm. you see here. Mm. But the way it's the way it's revealed is in quite a, a ho-hum way. And, it, I mean, yeah, like in... It's kind of magic is uncanny in Game of Thrones because it's, it's, it's normal, but it's not commonplace. Yes. Or, or, or it's, it's part of the fabric of reality, but it's not commonplace. Where it's also just at a pragmatic level here, it's very hard to figure out the magic coordinates of the like what what magic entails who has it that's that's compressed in a really confusing way and that definitely does detract from the twist here yes as well I agree. because we you know we know magic exists. we know magic exists yeah we don't really know what the significance of this particular mm. magical power is but mm. nonetheless it doesn't have that, that the shock of say the game of thrones twists and, and on that note maybe it's worth saying i mean the twist happens inside the fold Yes. And you see two things. You see an act of magic and you see these Volcra, these Pteranodon-like creatures, both of which I think actually detract from the inherent eeriness of the fold. Yes. Like this, the fold is almost reduced to a couple of CGI spectacles rather than just being what it, what it should be. This, I mean, it's almost like at its best, the fold is like a rupture in the fabric of reality. Yes. It's like a negative space. Yes. Whereas they try and fill it in with CGI spectacle and magic spectacle in a way that I think actually... You know, and if you think about adapting a YA novel to the screen, the fold is what works visually. Yes. So they, they don't, it doesn't seem to understand... It doesn't get its strength, I no, think, in that respect. No, the, I think the strengths of this series are where you're just gazing upon Gaze the, fold. the fold. It's, it's funny, on that note, I wondered whether this is um, maybe a bit of a indication of how things have changed from Game of Thrones. I wondered if the fold was kind of like reflected a new era of environmental catastrophe like it kind of reminded me of like remember around 20 to 2010s like films like 2012 the day after tomorrow they were full of like huge waves yes and this this feels like that like the fold is like this amorphous event that no one can quite put their finger on it betokens some environmental catastrophe and they cross it in a ship yes but when they're in a ship when they're in it it's like they're suspended above the water but also submerged beneath the water at the same time. So mm. it's like this kind of unruly ocean mm. that doesn't respect normal boundaries. Mm. But you can't, you can't put your finger on it either. It's like that awareness of climate mm. catastrophe. It's, mm. it's amorphous. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Maybe allegorically you could read this as a, as a climate, and I wondered climate if, text. And I wonder if there were shows like, say, The Terror, Black Sails, where the, the, you could say something about these gothic seafaring shows mm. that are subliminally... Yes, about climate catastrophe. Anyway, yeah, just an aside. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think that's. Yeah. I think that's very true. Yeah. I think that's very true. But yeah, keep, keep, and keep, I, yeah. I think that the third reason. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. Um, is just the sheer narrative incoherence yes. of this pilot. Yes. Now, yes. I I was actually paying quite uh, solid attention to this because yes. I found I thought maybe if I paid really strong attention, the yeah. world building really come to the fore here. But I had no idea why characters were trying to cross the fold. No, I agree. Did you? No. Uh, other than maybe to map it. But they didn't seem to be doing that effectively. Maybe, One character burnt the map, so I couldn't. I thought maybe figure. trade. There was some issue with trade okay. or alliances. But, I <laughs> but mean, you certainly don't want a pilot uh, to work no. or, or to leave your like your viewers like completely befuddled no. as to what's happening or what what why characters are motivated to do highly dangerous things. I mean, I was like, why on earth would they? pilot their way through <laughs> a question i asked myself but you're right though like it's not at all clear so no. it's like they have this incredible spectacle this rupture this you know like hyper object this environmental catastrophe that is everywhere and nowhere that can't be seen but makes its impact felt in every moment and yet the series doesn't have an interest in following it through i mean it the fault I me mean, he's you know it's always easy to say what you would do but here's an example of how it could have gone in the first season, someone disappears into the fold and they emerge at the end. 
Like we, we don't yeah. even need to go into the fold in the no. first season. No, that would that would have been so much better in some ways. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Just yeah. show, don't tell in yeah. some ways. You know, there is something to Keep that. your powder dry. Yeah. Keep your powder dry. And I think... Especially those Volcra. Yes, yes. I, I mean, the fold is just pterodactyls. <laughs> it's just like Jurassic, you know, Jurassic fold. It's just Jurassic fold. So I think that narrative coherence really extends right down to the dialogue. Yep. So... Well, Game of Thrones suggested and foreshadowed there were lots mm. of mysteries in this mm. world. Here, the dialogue just borders on incomprehensible. So uh, uh, I'll just give you an example yeah, of one line ahead. of dialogue. Is, uh, I'm in need of a heart ringer for a one million oh, Kruger I've got, job. I've, I've forgotten about the, I'd forgotten about the heart ringer subplot. I'd forgotten about the heart ringer subplot. <laughs> there's, a lot of, oh. there's a lot of new jobs in, yes. this, in this YA future. There's been, yeah. there's been a lot of uh, a Keynesian employment program. Yeah. And uh, we have a lot of... Uh, we have. We have not only cartographers mm. and heart heart ringers. We have as well a couple other jobs: squallers. Yes, I remember just <laughs> and trackers. The heart ringers was when I was when I I, I checked out. <laughs> you can just foresee that the the YA Buzzfeed quiz. Which are you? Are you are you a heart ringer? Are you a squaller? Yeah, it's going for that. Are you a tracker or a cartographer? Billy? Yeah. What do you reckon you are? I think I'm probably a cartographer. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> who are we kidding? For, You're definitely a cartographer. For those who um who don't know me personally in the podcast, I have amazing spatial cognition. I say that drop me anywhere, I'll be able to find my way around. It's just a part of who I am. It's like running seven k's a day. <laughs> it's your superpower. It's my superpower. Yep. Uh, so I think I think just on that sheer level, I was very confused. Yes. And it's not good. Because the stakes are obviously significantly lower when you don't actually know what's happening or what's. And also, you know, it reminds me of you, like in those early seasons of Game of Thrones, when you know the dialogue was very tight in establishing the world. It was also just intrinsically enjoyable and witty on yes. its own terms. So here, even yes, if it you was under- ribald, yeah, nice, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but here, even if you understand it, it's um, it's just functional. So I mean, I, I, I think I'm, I'm a hard out on this. Like I like not even Pekka Rollins. Well, I was going to ask you about how you thought about the Pekka. <laughs> So Pekka Rollins is the, oh, no, is that, the quasi the kind of chief pe- of the uh, criminal blinders, underworld yeah. of Ketterdam. Pecky blinders. Yeah. <laughs> Pecky blinders. Look, I think I'm a I'm a hard out for this. I thought I thought I liked the fold. I found the twee YA stuff in that context just I found it kind of silly. Like yeah. there's great YA lit. There's great YA adaptations. I just thought this was kind of basic in the I, way it did it. I think maybe the fantasy series, maybe the books, is where you really need to go here well, for the, I have, the world building. I love the Grishaverse in its literary <laughs> incarnation. So maybe I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a kind of Grisha stan. Yeah. So I feel like... But I think the Grishaverse, whatever, has become very algorithmic yes. in this Netflix incarnation. Yeah, well, certainly compared to the novels. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm a hard out. <laughs> I'm a hard out too. Okay, on to our next show. So we're doing our first new sitcom for a while. I know, I know. Are you excited? We've been, we've been a bit. I am. We've been off. <laughs> this is your wheelhouse. I've got a lot of um. I've got a whole bank of sitcoms lined up for Archive Corner, oh, no. and this might. I'm, I'm not doing a sitcom this week, but this might be an incentive to get back into my sitcoms. I've got I've got so many to go through. So when you when you're watching this, were you just sinking down into your safe I space? I was. I was. Yeah. Well, yes and no. So let me let me talk you through what I thought about, and then we can exchange views. So. The show's called Rutherford Falls, and it's it's kind of it's one of many shows I think that has tried to fill in. That there's been many workplace comedies since The Office and Parks mm. and Recreation, um, and all of them I think have tried to follow in the footsteps of those two shows. Yes. So in recapture the magic exactly, and in retrospect, like it's quite incredible how seamlessly Parks and Recreation took the mantle up from The Office. Mm. So those two feel totally continuous now. At the same time, those two shows came out quite a long time ago now, mm. and there's things in them that I mean, you know, problem problematic is a strong word, but you feel like the kind of the man child protagonist or in Leslie, the, the woman child Leslie Nope, something about it might not work as well in today's comic climate. So, yes, definitely. I, I read some some quite funny uh, work office memes. So right. one of the one okay. of the great ones is that is the office just a just a covert video filming operation to determine Pam's sexual harassment suit against yes. everyone in the office. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I want to check on employee efficiency. And look, you know, I love both the series. So I don't want to, you know, um, crap on them. But, you know, definitely there's a certain kind of quirkiness and a certain kind of oblivion to them that wouldn't ramify now. So I think you've seen a, a variety of shows try to take, take up the spot that they filled but with a slightly more worldly sensibility. So just as an aside, I think the show that does it best, I think the true 
um, air, air, air is Superstore, which oh. is has um, I got into a couple of years ago, but it's shifted to Netflix now. Um, and it's got one of the showrunners, I think, is from The Office. And the way it deals with it is to have the same workplace comedy, but bring in unionisation. Oh, and right. so okay. it's, it's quite remarkable for being a sitcom that deals with unions and union busting. So mm. the show we're doing tonight, Rutherford Falls, I think, has a similar impulse, but it goes a different way. So whereas, yes. whereas Superstore looks at industrial relations... Uh, Rutherford Ford looks at it more from the perspective of race yes. and land. That's so, the paradigm. Yeah, that's the paradigm. Mm. So, and again, another one is the show Corporate looks at it through like neoliberal corporate. So there's, there's different shows that try and amplify what now feels like a slight insularity to the office and park. So mm. the premise of Rutherford Falls, if you've got, it's the first um, sitcom by a um, First Nations, created by a First Nations writer. And um, it's created by... Uh, I think it's Jana Schmeeding who's in it. I'll just double check. I think that. it's Ed Helms, Michael Schur, and oh, Sierra Teller Ornelas. Sorry, yep, I got that wrong. Um, and yeah, so sorry, sorry about that. And there's two main characters in it. So on the one hand, it, it's it's set in a town called Rutherford Falls. So on the one hand, we have Reagan Wells, played by Jana Schmeeding, and she runs a First Nations museum, which is just a single room in the local casino. Yes. So her kind of issue is that people only ever come in there when they're drunk no one's actually interested in the first nations history that's her bugbear yes on the other hand you have ed helms who plays nathan rutherford as the name suggests he is a descendant of one of the original pioneers inverted commas of the town and his bugbear is that there's a statue which commemorates the purchase inverted commas of the town which is placed in the middle of the main square in the town, but at a really awkward angle. So it's not even flush in the middle of the intersection. So it causes, you know, accidents and Traffic stuff like chaos. that. Traffic chaos. So, and there's, there's a move to um, shift the position of the statue, which we find out only shows a European person, Rutherford, rather than the First Nations person he bought the town from, inverted commas, and he wants to keep the statue in place. So what you have is, and he's best friends with Reagan. So what you have is these two best friends, Reagan and um, Nathan, Jana Schmeeding and Ed Helms, who both have an agenda when it comes to the town, mm. who both have a passion project. Hers is to get a proper First Nations museum and his is to keep a statue commemorating the purchase of the town in pride of place. And they meet up for drinks, they meet up for dinner and they kind of, they give each other pep talks and they support each other in their different projects. And to be fair... It does become clear even during the pilot that their projects are a bit incompatible. Yeah. And um, they deal with that. So, look, I I kind of felt, I guess, kind of really mixed about this. So, on the one hand, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll say what I thought really quickly and I'll let you talk. Like, on the one hand, I like the generosity of the project. So, I think we live in a time when, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm gay myself, so I understand the impulse to do this, when, you know, people in a minority group it's very easy just to be dismissive of people in a majority group who don't get it. And this series searches for a more reparative way to go about like building understanding. It searches for a more reparative way to build a connection between, in this case, white man whose family founded the town and local First Nations person. So I like its generosity. At the same time, there was something I found like a, just a bit exhausting and a bit implausible about the series as well and about mm. which I think could easily resolve with future episodes mm. but just as a pilot as a comic pilot I just I didn't I didn't it didn't quite work for me either what, what well, did you as, think as a comic pilot it's fatal flaw is it's not funny yeah it's it's perky <laughs> it's almost like it's so incongruous that these two people are friends or it's so incongruous that these two people could possibly think there's parity between their projects. I mean, establishing a First Nations museum mm. and keeping a colonial statue in place. I mean, keeping colonial statues in place was partly the project of Trumpians, you know? So, like... Well, that's that's where... I think that is a, that is a right target for satire. I agree. But the but, way it goes but, about it is very his, clumsy. But his friendship with her feels... In, I mean... It does, it, it, it's almost like in lieu of comedy... It has this hyperactive perkiness just to try and keep it plausible that yes. these two characters are each other's cheer squad. Yeah. It stitches together a friendship that doesn't quite hold water. I'm yep. really mixing metaphors there. Yep. But I didn't believe that these people were friends. They didn't seem to have a particularly strong comic rapport. Yep. And their projects were clearly clearly incompatible from the get-go. So, And it's almost like, I mean, to give Superstore as a counterpoint, I mean... 
Superstore integrates the union stuff so elegantly. This is more like kind of aggressively, continually and aggressively kind of reminding you that, yes, the man-children of the office and parks are good allies. (laughs) You know, like there's something, the way in which it tries to fold it all into a kind of woker, and I mean that in a good way, like a woker sensibility, it's just a bit ham-fisted and a bit, Mm. I don't know, just a bit relentless in this. Paired with Ed, I mean, I like Ed Helms in certain contexts, but his relentless likability can also, in the wrong hands, can just be a bit... Exhausting. And I also wanted her, Janish Meeting, I thought she had good presence. I wanted her to puncture him a little bit. I wanted a bit more of a a prickly rapport between the two. A bit more of a spiky rapport, which maybe that happens. Maybe this has got to be Mm. a bit vanilla to draw in in viewers. That's true. And perhaps because they're both quite naive in some ways as characters Mm. that... Their, I suppose, the incompatibility of their project as that emerges, there might be more of a hostility between them. And you already, I agree. you already suggest that, but they certainly, there's certainly not good comic chemistry between them. No, and interestingly, I mean, I'm, I'm on the fence about this. I'm, I'm interested to watch it more, but actually, not so much for the comedy, but just I'm interested what happens narratively. Like okay. I feel it could be interestingly, the mechanics of it could get really interesting. But it's, and look, at the same time, it's worth remembering, I guess, that The Office and Parks both had very weak, I thought, first seasons. Yes, that like is true. They, it took them a while. And this, That's true. This is one of those pilots where I am quite provisional about it because I feel like everything is there. It just, at the moment, it's so keen to make it seem, to make this alliance plausible, which is a, a leap of good faith and a leap of imagination. I appreciate that. That the perkiness, the hyperactivity, occludes any real possibility for comic timing. I think that's I true. I think at this point. I think that's yeah. true. And I think as well, it's it's quite keen to set up the narrative hook yes. in some ways. And because it rushes through that yes. in some ways, it doesn't give the characters room to breathe. No. It introduces quite a vast array of characters. And one thing I was surprised about is I assume mm. this is a workplace comedy that occurred in, for example... Uh, a museum or mm. a, a civic building in Rutherford Falls, mm. but it's much broader, much more sweeping in some ways, and mm. it tries to paint the whole town mm. and even people outside of the town. Mm. So the uh, Ed Helms' distant or more remote family who all live in New York. Mm. And in some ways as well, its quest for topicality, mm. I think, hinders, I suppose, hinders just the natural innate comic chemistry in some ways. And I think the strength of play, uh, series like Parks and... Mm. The office were they were engaging with contemporary issues but just not not head on I, I agree and this is that that's why i think though it might take a while to relax it because at the moment you have i mean you know the office and parks they're both their signature i guess you'd say is like hokey americana mm. and here you almost have hokey americana coming up against its exact opposite yes so they have to amp up the energy to kind of it's like dialectic they have to fuse the two <laughs> into something new yeah I just feel like, you know, a couple of episodes down the track, and especially a season down the track, it could really work. But yeah, I, 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 what I would like to see is just a little bit more of a combative vibe. Because yeah. I mean, both the office and Parks have some very combative relationships. Oh, absolutely. So Ron Swanson is very combative, yeah. like Michael with Toby yeah. Henderson. Oh, that's an incredible passive aggressive energy. Yes, exactly. Flowing through all those, which is both the- in some ways just, I suppose. Sh- shaped into something more respectable given the office climate that's necessary but and and you need it to offset the sentimentality yeah so here every character is so polite yes and and winning in some ways that you do lack that i suppose the the tension comes from outside yes comes from the discourses in the in the broader society that seek to divide this i agree these friends rather than unite them but i agree i guess you know i hope it i hope it flourishes i definitely hope it gets a second season because to think of building this relate like building this relationship into that kind of world and transforming that world from the inside out, I think is really interesting. So it's I think it, it definitely has it's like the kind of show I might check back in on mm. in a season. I think as well, there are some scenes, although I don't think the pilot itself is particularly funny, there are some very funny scenes mm. isolated. Yes. Um, and I think one is where the um, the main lady who I'm just trying to Judge Meeting. Judge yeah, Meeting. Yeah. Uh, she's running the the, the cultural centre, you know, is just a kind of epifite yes. to the, the casino project mm. and people come in and ask, you know, try to buy the Native yes. American artefacts as, yes. as, as if they're souvenirs and ask to charge their phones. And that, that's a very funny scene. And that's and it's interesting, in the, that's an example of a scene where 
the series just pulls away from the constant perky rapport and just focuses on one character, kind yeah. of, kind of in a space. Yes, okay, just the atmosphere and yeah. immerses you in it, and and her, and also focuses on the workplace as well. Yes, exactly, and the you know, and also the interchange between her and the other the other members of the casino as well yes, is quite I agree. Is quite fun. She's in some ways the Leslie Nope type character. I agree here, the the idealist, the civic minded, exactly community minded organizer you- who's you know. I suppose dipped into a sea of cynicism in some ways. Yes, exactly. So, but in some ways, Ed Helms is also that. But I guess he's the Michael Scott type character. So in some ways, we have a Michael Scott and a Leslie Knight. It combines the two. Where's the where's the where's the tension in yeah, some ways? Where's the Dwight? Um, <laughs> but yeah, and and it's also you feel that if it, it focuses on her workplace and focuses on his because he runs the Rutherford kind of museum, mm. the those two spaces have a lot of potential. I think. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and mm. both are, like both, I think are winning comic mm. actors. Mm. Um, I just don't think that this the writing uh, no. is sharp enough for uh, the sort of pilot to really hook you in. But uh, again, I I do hear what you're saying. Yeah, I think it, neither was the office, nor was Parks. Yeah. So it did take a while for those it's kind those of, series to build that comic chemistry. Yeah, they're the kind of series that they have to you have to give them a while before they feel lived in. Yeah, but once they do, so I'm I'm curious. Like even in the process of talking about this. I'm now curious to watch a second episode and just to watch a couple of episodes. I mean, I am a sitcom you junkie. Are. You are. But I am curious to see where it goes. <laughs> and like, certainly it says great pedigree coming from Michael Schur, who's yes, one of the, exactly. the key co-creators of The Office. Um, and obviously Ed Helms, who played a large role in The Office. Yes. So the pedigree here is is quite impeccable. It's strong. And the, I suppose the, the casting is very good as well. Yes. So the, There's lots the, of good the actor who plays the head of the, the casino yeah, empire is also very, very good in this as well. So And he's, he's because the, the main friends get on so well, he's the closest we come to a real antagonist, yeah. which gives it just that prickly edge. Yeah. So look, I... I um, I'm sorry, I almost knocked over my microphone again. <laughs> I think I'm I'm definitely curious about this. I'm not writing it off, and I think it could become really big. I think this is one of those series that if I hear good things, if I hear good buzz yes. about the latter part of the first season or if it's renewed a second season, I might dip back in. But You'll return to it. just based on the pilot itself, I'm an out. Yep, cool. Okay, on to show three. Um, well, I know how much you love animation, Billy, and how much you love superhero. I love su- well, you know, I love one, I love One Division, but you're you're quite a big, you're quite a big fan of the Falcon and Falcon the and Winter, Winter Soldier. Yeah. How did that go for you in the end? How did the how did, well, how did that heard, end? Well, I heard that oh. it, that the ending was not oh. was not. <laughs> it uh, it shat the proverbial bed. Apparently, it was an amazing allegory for celebrity, for current celebrity culture. I still stand by that. Yeah, yeah. I still stand by I'm that. I'm still a little bit scandalised by how quickly you went from not watching what. Anyway, that's that's another conversation. <laughs> that's by the by. Yeah. Um, so, Invincible. It's probably the most prestigious animated series of the year. Oh well, yeah, it's, absolutely. Um, on Amazon Prime, it's based on the character by Robert Kirkman. Um, I love Robert Kirkman's <laughs> graphic design. Um, and look, basic gist: it's about a teenager, Mark Grayson. His father, Nolan, is like a super superhero, like the most powerful superhero. Um, there's kind of two parts, I guess, to the pilot. On the one hand, we follow Mark. Um, as he reaches you know, like 16, 17 years of age and starts to get his own superpowers. Mm. Did you start to develop superpowers when you went through puberty? Andrew? I sure did. Yeah, okay, let, let's not go with it. <laughs> but, you know, there's a big link here between puberty and superpowers. No, right? that's, for sure. that's a big part of it. Um, and a lot of it is revolves around him learning to fly, which I think is actually the strength. Mm. Those scenes are the best part. And then at the end, there's a twist where his father, who up until this point has been a comforting, you know, avuncular, you know, reassuring figure abruptly and violently kills all the other superheroes who are part of his team, suggesting he's been possessed in some kind of way. Mm. So you have almost like a, not quite a sitcom, but almost like this quotidian coming-of-age story yes. for most of it. And then <laughs> Puberty allegory. Exactly, exactly. And, and <laughs> That's why I go to my superhero movies, for the ab- puberty. Absolutely, and it does make a lot, a big deal of that analogy. Um, and then at the end, you have this very violent scene. So... I don't know a lot about comic books and about um, you know this particular comic. What did you think of it? What was your what was your feeling? It, it's quite a it's quite a long pilot too. Like it it's is. fifty it's, minutes of animation. Yeah. What did you think about so the, I, I the animation, think, the style? Uh, it it is an interesting, I suppose, experiment in mm. longer form narrative mm. for animated narrative as well, mm. and in some ways represents this the exploration of these superhero narratives mm. in some ways and. The superhero narrative as a vehicle for exploring other concerns. Mm. So, like like you said here, I mean, the main emphasis here is on 
is on the growth and maturation of this of this main mm. character in some ways as he experiences these superpowers. See that, um, but that... I think in some ways the the way that this is marketed and the way this is filmed and framed in some ways is as if this puberty allegory is a, is a really revolutionary gesture well, this is... in some ways. When I think in some ways this is really baked into the plot of almost every superhero in some ways, I'm mean, particularly Spider-Man, and especially the Sam Raimi. This Spider-Man. is something I was going to say. I mean, this has been billed as, as you said, like quite a revolutionary animated series, but also as an adult superhero series, mm. like a super an adult in the sense of sophistication, conceptual, you know, adventurous. And you know, I can see the adult content at the end. It's a very violent closing scene. But yeah, I was surprised. I thought that the characterization the story was pretty basic and, and mm. something like you'd expect from a kind of after-school animation series. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think there were elements of the style that were quite beautiful we can come back to, but I thought story-wise it was quite basic in yeah. terms of its... It, it did have an interesting uh, framing device. The first, the first scene mm. features two security guards talking about uh, fathers and sons mm outside the White House. And I thought this is a very offbeat way of starting this mm. series. But almost as soon as that series, or as, soon as, as soon as that scene started, it then just devolved into a kind of generic battle sequence for 10 minutes. And, I, and again, yeah, exactly. Like I thought that opening scene might exactly give way to that kind of offbeat humour. But for the most part, the kind of, the comic scenes are more kind of like slight chortle humour yes. rather than rather than genuinely witty. And they don't subvert the action. No. They're just in some ways like a kind of typical Marvel movie, mm. an adjunct to it. Exactly. Yeah. And really what we have here is a pretty like down-the-line animated superhero series with a few touches around the end, a few embellishments. The, that... stu- the stuff I did th- think did work were the action scenes. I mean, obviously when you're writing a graphic novel, like it's there's such a skill in creating dynamism within the frame, right? Mm. So, and especially creating, evoking huge planes of space, mm. which is so important for a superhero, um, for a superhero kind of narrative. And something I thought this did really well in the action scenes was kind of continually pivoting the perspective and changing the scale so that you got that really vivid sense of action and space in a similar way that you would in a comic strip. Mm. And for that reason, I thought that the flying... Se- the flying sequences were quite strong, especially when they were involved the cityscape, well, and you're moving through the cityscape. They were quite strong. Exactly. Because I was going to say, I thought the story was quite weak. I thought the facial expressions were quite weak. Mm. I thought... It's pretty rudimentary, a lot of the animation. It's very rudimentary. And although there's a, a host of, you know, big, like, top-tier actors, like J.K., you know, all kind of, you know, prestige actors like J.K. Simons doing the voices, I thought the delivery was pretty bland too. But what I thought did work was... The, the movement, the dynamism, and the mise-en-scene. So mm. I thought that... And the backdrops are very beautiful. So mm. I thought the flying scenes did that well. And it deals with flying in a really interesting way. So because it's about a young kind of teenager discovering his superpowers, most of it revolves around him learning to fly. Mm. And his proce- and so flying is still strange to him. Mm. So there's lots of scenes of him like hovering above the earth, trying to mm. leave and the that, ground. That permeable permeable barrier between sky and space. Yes, that absolutely. explored that quite well. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, a lot of it, a lot of mm. it takes place in that threshold between the sky and space. And mm. that I thought was really effective. And they, they explore it in a whole lot of different ways. So there's a scene where his father is playing baseball with him and he throws a baseball away from him and it goes around the entire circumference of the earth and returns to him. But then the director cuts to just a pair of random mountaineers suddenly seeing the baseball as it kind of cruises through at the top mm. of a mountain. So... It just it had a very lyrical sense of space, and it, it reminded me like it, it. It's funny you say Spider Man because it took me back to those very early Marvel films before the MCU, when part of the thrill was like the sublime verticality of space. Yeah. So I feel like especially just post nine eleven, when the superhero yeah. film was really inflected through that huge skyscrapers, jumping you know from building to building, kind of yawning cityscapes below you. That vertical space was such an exciting part mm. of the superhero movie, mm. and as you said, like not, you know, the Marvel films, the MCU, and Avengers, the space is so cosmic and universal and digital that you don't 
I thought this was, in contrast, that this was the perfect balance. There's that slight cosmic edge, that cusp between sky and space, but a lot of it deals with huge buildings and urban, like it, it's mm. framed in an urban way. So yeah. I thought it really recaptured something, that exciting visceral vertical thrill. Mm. And especially there's in the final scene when the father calls all the superheroes and kind of kills them, mm. they all kind of ascend from yeah. different spaces. So there's yeah. all these vertical trajectories that are really atmospheric. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a lot better than the story. That Th- part of that's it. That's true. I think I think one element that mm. is a is a genuine welcome addition as well to that standard linear plot is the dream sequences here as well. Yes, especially as the characters which, going which through, involve flying as well. Yes. That's right. Going through, I suppose, this quite perplexing mm. uh, puberty journey. Mm. There are a couple of quite disorienting cuts. Yep, and you're not quite sure whether it was a dream, whether it was reality. And mm. as cliche as that sounds. It's done quite effectively in an animated series and definitely yes. it's quite disarming. Well, because animation is already slightly unreal, mm. it can blend reality and and dream sequences really mm. effectively. I was um I was gonna say just, you know, with the flying thing too, it's a lot about the logistics of flying. Mm. Like how to fly. Yeah. Like like he talks about like you have to let yourself what do you say? It's like it's like wetting it's like your, peeing your pants wetting your pants intentionally. <laughs> but he has a bit where you have to let yourself drop then I don't know, I can't remember the details, but it just it feels like a very realistic Yeah. Yeah. And that father son rapport and development. I mean in in many cases or in a lot mm. of superheroes, there's a weird sort of Freudian thing where yep. their father's dead in mm. some ways and, mm. and doesn't really play a large mm. role in their life and certainly doesn't mentor them in mm. the role of the superhero in some ways they're already fatherless mm. um, as a result of their superpowers. Mm. So there is something unique, and I don't think I've seen that yet. Yes, and I, and I think unique because it was so quotidian. So you know, in a way, when we watched, um, was it uh, Superman and Lois, we mm. thought like in some ways it was similar. It was Superman mentoring his sons as they developed powers. But it was bound up in such lugubrious angst, whereas yeah. here... I quite like just how humdrum their suburban life was. That's like, right. I feel like I could almost watch it as a sitcom. Like, yeah, and, and it seemed like his he was his father was living as a superhero, quite openly and visibly in yes. the community, but as well, but also expected because his son develops his superhero powers late, so he has superhero shame. Yeah, expected his son would never become a superhero, mm. so he's kind of resigned to the fact, and actually welcomes the fact that, you know, his superhero stuff takes place in his professional life but at home they're a normal family so i was i was in some ways i don't know about you i was kind of hoping that he would never develop the superpowers i, I agree i agree like and i also think you know because as you said the animation is quite low i mean it's very beautiful in some ways but in everyday scenes it's a bit low grade the animation is a bit it's a bit banal in places and mm. it, it fits that everyday vibe yeah. so i kind of almost wanted an alternation between superhero missions and just yeah. day-to-day life yeah in the household it, i think it could have been quite fun and i'd I don't, don't mean to question the author of this, yep. but had he not developed superpowers and it just been about his agonising wait mm, mm. for his superpowers to eventually mm. kick in and perhaps the fear that they never would. Or just, or just him being resigned to it and going about his day-to-day stuff yeah. while his, his family... While his, yeah, yeah, while his dad was, was doing the superhero thing. Can I ask you, what did you think about the concluding? Because, you know, for most of it, I was thinking, you know, this doesn't seem adult in the sense of especially conceptual. But I also thought... This doesn't seem adult in the sense of being especially explicit. No. But then you have these final five minutes where the father, apparently possessed, calls up all the other superhero allies and murders them. Really, what did you think? It's a very violent scene. What, what did you think? Yeah, about well, that? I kept wondering while I was watching it when it mm. would justify its R rating. Yeah. For for high level violence, mm. and certainly nothing until that sequence had prepared me for it. Because I, I felt mixed about it. Like on the one hand, I thought it was a really powerful counterpoint. On the other hand, I thought it was just a bit silly and gross. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure how I felt about it. Like, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of like eye gouging, and I mean, it is shocking. I don't know. I just, I just maybe sometimes violent. I mean, and again, another way of putting that, um, that uncertainty. Like on the one hand, I felt like the violence felt more shocking, animated. Yeah. But on the other hand, it felt a bit more gratuitous and a bit sillier yeah. as well. So yeah. I was in two minds about that final sequence. Well, in some ways, this this uh, pilot is indebted to a lot of different superhero stories yep, yep. and I don't know exactly when the comic book was written but it, in some ways it reminded me a lot of Kick-Ass remember yes, Kick-Ass yes. and Kick-Ass had a quite a naive protagonist mm. um, but uh, interspersed yep. with his just kind of musings about adolescence and his quite you know cute little crush on a girl there was extreme all those kind of ultraviolence yep. that occurred in this world and as exactly, well exactly this so, is animated ultraviolence yeah it's a similar similar kind of conceit mm. in some ways and Kick-Ass didn't worked in the first one but then the second didn't work at all and Jim no. Carrey d- 
decried it for, for glamorising violence. And I think I, I think it's at the same time that Jim Carrey was collaborating on his um, peer-reviewed peer, peer peer <laughs> anti-vaccination articles. Yeah, so I, I think maybe there's a... I think that that'd be shocking the first time, mm. and that's a kind of that's a once-only type thing. I agree. Maybe and maybe that's a perfect way to resolve this tension. I feel about it. Like I was a bit on the fence this time, not because I'm squeamish about violence, just because you know extreme violence always has the potential just to be silly. Yes, and I, spe- I think especially cartoonish, well, literally, yeah, pathetic, literally cartoonish. Yeah. yeah. So I think this really trod that line. And you'd hope that from now on the series uses it pretty sparingly because that could get pretty old yeah. quickly. But look, I'm, I probably won't continue watching it. Like I'm not a big animation fan. I'm not a no. big superhero fan. But I thought it was, I thought it was very beautiful and very accomplished graphically and in terms of animation. But I, I was a little bit underwhelmed by the story. I guess. Yeah. I think there's enough here if you're into animation or you're yep. into superhero stories mm. to keep you engaged. Mm. Um, but for me, it was just—it was actually a little bit disappointingly generic. I agree. Yep, I'm probably an out for I'm that reason. I'm probably an out too. Okay, on to our archive choice for this week. Take us away, Drew. Yeah. So this was one uh, series that I've always wanted to watch. Mm. It looked intriguing when it first got released, but I think it was definitely an under the radar series, and mm. perhaps that's true to really the the plot and the stylistics of this series. So the series is called Lodge Forty Nine. It's an American comedy drama TV series created by Jim Gavin. Uh, it aired on the AMC network in the United States uh, from 2018 to 2019. Mm. So it went for two seasons, 20 episodes. Oh, so it hasn't been continued? No, it was oh. it was not continued. Okay, I thought it was ongoing for some reason. No, yeah. it's currently streaming on, on Prime mm. in Australia. And interestingly, the title alludes to the novella The Crying of Lot 49 well, by Thomas Pynchon. That's interesting. I was going to say, this is the most Pynchon-esque series ever, right? Like in a good way, like mm. it's original, but Thomas Pynchon is everywhere mm. in it. And Gavin references that as an explicit inspiration for the series. Oh, right, yeah. So essentially what occurs in this pilot is we have a, a kind of maybe naive, optimistic surfer slasher mm. uh, slacker type character not slasher slacker character <laughs> yet <laughs> yet uh well ex-surfer we should say yep. uh called dud who i've got to say reminded me so much of the dude don't you think <laughs> yes. I feel like big jeff bridges the, I mean, I know, this, I know, this I, series wears its inspirations on its on its sleeve massive for sure. massive uh, it's yeah played massive. by white russell yep. uh, kurt russell's and son goldie and goldie Horn's yep. son uh he's drifting around after the death of his father mm. and trying to in some ways restore the nuclear family that's been deprived of him and in particular his family's business Mm. and house. Mm. Um, In the first season, he stumbles across a mysterious ring bearing an insignia that Mm. leads him to a fraternal order known as the Order of the Lynx, Mm. which is a kind of Mason, Masonic type lodge equivalent. Mm. And he hopes in in joining this to somehow find a path in some ways uh, and restore his life. So mm. while a lot of the pilot is focused on on Dud, there is also a, another key, I suppose, narrator in some mm. ways. And this this character in particular is uh, is played by Brent Jennings, mm. and he is stars as a character called Ernie Fontaine, mm. who's a plumbing salesman and a member of Lodge Forty Nine, mm. and he's sort of the insider to Dud's outsider. Mm. And you see It's quite elegant how it brings their two stories together, isn't that's it? That's right. Yeah. You see you see his interactions with other members of the mm. lodge, but they're all very mysterious and there's mm. there's a lot there's a lot of subtext here in his interactions. And the tone is funny, isn't it? Because it's kind of like there's a kind of mysterious conspiracy vibe, but also a benign vibe. It yes. reminded me have you seen Under the Silver Lake? I have, yes. It reminded me a bit of that. I like was going. To, I was going to say this. There's a lot of inspirations, uh, or it feels like this is certainly of a piece with a lot of other the LA other con- recent texts. The, the LA, the LA conspiracy, conspiracy, mm. peripatetic narrative. The Southern Californian yes. slacker, so surfer, cool. stoner yep. dude. I, I think also inherent vice. Well, okay, this is kind of what I wanted inherent vice to be. I was going to say that. Tonally, you know, I mean, I know it's a different story, but tonally, atmospherically, this is... Also just in terms of characterisation. I agree. I mean, this this makes you realise how vacant Joachim Phoenix was in That's right. Inherent Vice. I don't think that worked. No, no. I have to say I love this. I did too. I yeah. thought this was a fantastic pilot. I, I thought it really succeeded in establishing 
a really endearing mm. central character. And I yep. think based on a lot of the parts we've seen, a lot of them don't do that. A lot of them spend so much time with narrative ingenuity or mm. uh, I suppose just visual dynamism. Mm. They don't actually ground us in a really compelling, endearing central character. And it had such a great sense of place too. Like I was, I was trying to think about like what made this so Pynchon-esque. I think it's that it's almost like you feel in Pynchon there's like an agoraphobia and a fear of horizontal space. So it's like whatever direction you go in, everything's contiguous and every space slides into every other space and there's no way to escape the sprawl. So like there's a great mm. scene where, uh, what happens, I've got it written down here, like the white, um, the white Russell character, he climbs in sideways through the window of a house he then kind of falls asleep. He hallucinates a snake sliding across the carpet. He then runs, hides in a cupboard. He comes out and greets the new... Like, every every space kind of slides horizontal, horizontally, contiguously into the next space. And there's no sense of any outside. Like, it's like the whole sprawl mm. is just... Like, even the place where he always hangs out, the strip mall, there's like a giant slide, mm. like ornamental slide at the top of that. And it's mm. like every space... It, like there's this fear of just mm. constant horizontal mm. sprawl. And it's in, well, the the, the, the place it. the place in the space is unnavigable. Yeah, it's but, unknowable but, in some ways. But but because it's because it is so metonymic, because it's so yeah. contiguous, because it's so horizontal. And he he tells a story about to explain the appeal of the lodge, and it's like the story is the only place we glimpse vertical space. So he tells some story about having a mirror on the ground, so flat space. Mm. But looking down into it, yes. So looking deep into the mirror, and it's almost like this fantasy of, of taking this horizontal sprawl of LA mm. and turning it into something vertical, something hierarchical, as you said, something navigable. So mm. I thought that I thought was done so well. Like that is such like when there's that scene in the crying of Lot Forty Nine when Edipa kind of imagines opening a hotel bedroom like door, doorway and looking out into the corridor and just all of LA just being hallway after hallway mm. after hallway. Like it's just mm. that sense that the sprawl goes on forever mm. and you need something vertical to reorient. Vanishing it. into the distant yeah. horizon. Yeah, I thought it did that so beautifully. Mm. Like I didn't think that sprawl was there an inherent vice. No. I didn't think it captured that sprawl in that it was languorous, mm. but it wasn't, it was laconic, but it didn't capture, here it just feels like, it's like a, optical illusion like every space just slides into the next space and mm. there's no hierarchy do you know what I mean there's mm. no vertical hierarchy of spaces i think as well there's, there's a real strength here in in suggesting very subtly this emerging conspiratorial mm. story in some ways and you, it really i think it really grounds it in the protagonist's perspective mm. so he fears that some sort of tragedy has befallen him mm. and he fears that he is the tragic hero in his own story mm. and he needs to sort of narrativize these series of unfortunate events mm. and put himself kind of restore his own narrative in some ways. And you see a lot of sequences where he's looking at signs and trying to figure like, out whether they're portents or whether mm. they're foreshadowing in some way. So there's, there's a lot of, there's a, again, the crows. Yes. We see the crows work here. The crows, the crows do work here. The crows were friggin' mysterious awful streets. in the nevers. Yeah. It was mysterious like, street signs, uh, old faded billboards in yes. some ways. The universe is trying to tell him something, and his his very his kind of philosophy, in some ways, conforms with this sort of self narrativization. Yep. And in some ways, when he comes to the lodge, he cites fate mm. as directing him there. Mm. And I think, in some ways, it's it's a character who's been deprived of these these meta narratives that structure our lives. I agree. So he's just re- resorting to just happenstance and random acts of fate other it's almost like you know in in the kind of high postmodern la you know novel like pension like conspiracy is the only way to understand la it's the only mm. way to map la and now you know 30 or 40 years later that sense of conspiratorial narrative has waned but even so it's the only way to kind of get a grip on it so mm. it's like it's like he has recourse to the conspiracy narrative as this kind of, it's almost like a nostalgia effect but it's also something that he needs to navigate his life as well. And it's yes. it's like this weird space between a, conspiracy, a conspiratorial mindset and a kind of self-help mindset, yes. which I think Under the Silver Lake was like that quite a bit as well. Yes. Like, but I think what's wonderful about this series mm. is that is that when he goes to the lodge and you see the lodge, mm. it is in some ways so banal in its appearance. And I when agree. he goes in, he asks, are there, are there barriers mm. or are there impediments to joining this? Mm. They're like, no. Just, yeah. just pay a certain amount of money. In some ways, the guy's trying to bilk him out of money. Mm. And then he's told 
to meet at a certain point and you mm. wonder whether there's going to be some sort of arcane ritual mm. to initiate him into the group and and it's just a tavern mm. but then there's a kind of double there's a double twist here mm. which embeds maybe a possible deeper more unknowable conspiracy beneath this quite banal accessible lodge yeah exactly it's almost like the conspiracy is like it's like a return of the repressed it's like the great age of conspiracies is over but Nevertheless, like it's still to be in LA is to have that kind of conspiratorial mindset in mm. some respect. So, mm. or at least to be in a in a kind of environment that breeds conspiracies, just yes. because of the saturation of of meaningless signs that are just the saturation thrust it thrust upon you. Yeah, like the saturation of media images, but also the sprawl, the horizontality, like the metonymy of the city. Like it's like a, a city without a center. So everything is a web of networks. Mm. And I loved the mm. kind of classic kind of imagery of evil here, the snakes, mm. the, uh, the the crows, and and the, and the kind of links. It suggested this kind of grand, kind of noble way of, of just approaching life and uh, I suppose just suggesting a kind of heroic quest in some ways when mm. there's something so wonderfully like contrapuntal about this about mm. this main character's quest it's it's comic offbeat energy in mm. some ways that just kind of undermines any kind of heroism mm. that he has but in some ways there is something heroic yeah, about but, this character mm. because he's dealing with incredible adversity mm. he's trying to cut himself off from technology mm. and he's trying to restore his family hearth and home mm. It's funny, and I think there's something, that imagery, I agree, is a really big part of it. Like, it's almost like if, as you say, even now in LA, there's all these empty signs, empty signifiers, the series has to fall back on a more kind of arcane kind of imagery. Mm. I mean, it reminded me of Knight of Cups. Like, the way, yeah. that, the way that Knight of Cups uses tarot imagery yeah. is like the way this uses supernatural imagery. And it's almost like it's, it's resorting to imagery that has a supernatural kind of power in order to combat the emptiness this empty network of signs that surround him so yeah, yeah i thought it was really i thought it was I, really effective i think all this is really compelling and i just uh, i suppose just in terms of you know your mm. readings and your critical mm. readings but just in terms of watchability i yeah. found this so incredibly watchable really really all compelling. the characters really well developed mm. the rapport between them so naturalistic and I just, I just loved Wyatt Russell's character. Uh, I, I just wanted to give him a big hug, yeah. and then I wanted to be friends with him. Yeah, because I just, I loved his character. I loved his, I loved his project in some ways. And mm. he's, he's kind of, in some ways, he's done a technology cleanse, mm. partly out of necessity, but partly because he's, mm. he wants to let the universe tell, give him a sign in some ways. And I think it shows, doesn't it? I mean, we see so many shows, especially contemporary kind of post-quality shows that that think naturalism has to be dour. Yeah. Whereas this show, I think, has a beautiful naturalism to it, but it's quite joyous yes. and quite... It's, it's, there's a lot of human connection in it, so it, it's a nice counterpoint just to the kind of... The yeah, dow, the people downess. are inherently good. Yeah. Most people will be friends, friendly mm. when you when you meet them, and that's what mm. happens when he, meet, when he goes to the lodge. People are... You know, there's, there's a wonderful sense that a few characters you know mm. they, they start threatening him and then mm. they just puncture it in a really hilarious comic way and it feels like a group of people you can kind of hang with as yeah. well which is yeah look i mean i'm, I'm in and i thought it was really impressive. i think in some ways because this is so self-contained mm. it's only 20 episodes and the second season has mm. got really terrific reviews mm. as well and in particular much louder was the was the final episode yeah, so right. i think this is actually even something more appealing about this as being a self-contained limited series yeah exactly that makes me want to watch it all the more that combination of kind of sprawl and containment yeah 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 no, i think great. this is one of the strongest pilots that i've i've seen in recent memory and i just i just love this that's great yeah no i, I thought it was great and like i said i, I thought it was kind of the, pro, the, the best approximation I've seen of a Pynchon vibe on screen, which is, a, which is a really hard... I mean, you could call it you know, a loose adaptation or a kind of a spiritual adaptation of The Crying of Lot 49 at, at a later date. So I think it really works in those terms Definitely. as well. Of all those, of all those texts, like uh, mm. Inherent Vice, yeah. Under the Silver Lake, I think, I think this is my, easily my favourite. Yeah, it, I, I liked Under the Silver Lake a lot, but yeah, it definitely has... Yeah, I think I think those two are on a par for me. I thought they were both really interesting. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah I yeah. thought it was fantastic. Yeah. Good choice. So, what's your archive choice? Well, it's interesting. Right. This week, I'm taking um, the archive choice not not so much from the TV pilots we've been watching, but from the films we've been watching. Oh, so, okay. you know, you, me, and Kyle have been on a bit of a '90s erotic thriller bender. Yeah. Um, actually, tonight we're watching a late 
um, later thriller um, Obsessed, yes. starring Beyonce. And, you know, you and I have both seen Basic Instinct relatively recently. Yes. And we, you, Kyle and I all watch Basic Instinct 2 together. Now, there's no Basic Instinct 3, even though Sharon Stone wanted it. But there is a series where Sharon Stone plays a writer who disappears. And this is oh. a, the series Mosaic. I'm, I'm going to call I've it. I've never se- heard of this series. So I'm going to call it a series loosely. It's Steven Soderbergh's series. I, I really wanted to see it when it came out. I think it was 2018, but it didn't. At that stage, it wasn't on any streaming services. And Soderbergh initially conceived of it as an app. So in its oh. original incarnation, Mosaic was an interactive app. Um, you, you couldn't um, determine the outcome of the story but you could choose to watch a story from different characters' perspectives. Um, At heart, it's about a woman, a writer, played by Sharon Stone, who goes missing. And it was then repurposed as a television series of six episodes. Wow. And it was meant to be the first in a series of interactive narrative apps that Soderbergh would work on. So you know this is in his kind of post-cinema period, so Mm. when he was doing all kinds of experimental stuff. And it was shot, I think, on an iPhone, or it looks like an iPhone. So it was the other big TV series alongside the Nick. So in its current... And apparently you can't get the app anymore. Right. So in its current incarnation, it's on Binge, it's a six-episode series with Sharon Stone, Garrett Hedlund, and a few other people about the disappearance of a children's author. So I feel like... Well, there you go. It's, I feel like it's it, topical. Ticks, it ticks a couple of boxes. <laughs> like it's it's affected. And I, I must give it... I've, I've watched just 10 minutes of it. Right. And Sharon Stone is absolutely... She brings it. She's absolutely in, <laughs> in Catherine Trammell mode. So I think she's playing it like Basic Instinct 3. Fantastic. Um, so... It, it kind of it's a nice counterpart to our Basic Instinct two rewatch, which was nice. interesting. The spiritual sequel, exactly. But also, I think it's just really interesting. Like it's 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 going to it's where what we'll be watching is effectively an interactive app repurposed as a pilot. Nice. So it'll be very different from the other stuff nice. we've watched. And I love Soderbergh. Yeah. And I love and it, I, I looked up online. It's all set in Park City, Utah, which is an incredibly atmospheric. Right. So I, I love this latter day Soderbergh kind of cold light blue filters look so for me it's a series i've wanted to watch for a long time long time since it came out and now it's available i was just thinking generally just as a final closing note isn't it amazing how much is now available on streaming services yeah i know five years ago the accessibility is is really high now you couldn't get anything in australia there's a war for content yeah i think that's driving that's driving a lot of shows onto these platforms so um so yeah so next week um soderbergh um mosaic I'm, i'm really looking forward to re-watching it great cool Um, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club.